Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Happy President's Day to everybody out there. PFT Live is off this week, but hashtag no days off. Hashtag PFTPM. You should know by now, whenever PFT Live is off, I can't keep my mouth shut. I literally wake up on the Saturday after the last week of the show wanting to keep going. It just becomes part of who you are. It's what you do. It is part of my routine, along with copy-paste snarky comment at PFT. It's talk about a bunch of stuff related to the NFL on PFT Live. And when PFT Live is dark, PFT PM is more active than usual. We have five shows this week, potentially. Three to five is my estimate. We'll see if we do one every single day. A lot of it is going to be driven by the developments. But even though we're caught in this gap between Super Bowl and Scouting Combine, we, we, we know. We know. There's always something going on in the NFL. Here's what's going on today, at least what's going on in my somewhat impaired mind as I still try to recover from jet lag. I have recovered. I have recovered from jet lag. It took longer than expected, but I am back fully and completely on East Coast time. And we'll stop babbling about that and get to it right now. The Super Bowl. One last thought about overtime. It really was a new frontier for everybody in many different ways, up to and including people in the press box who shouldn't have been confused, but were confused about what would happen when the initial 15-minute period trickled down to zero as the Chiefs were showing no sense of urgency to try to get plays off as that first period came close to expiring. And as we know, or at least as we should know, they just would have gone to the other end and kept going. It wouldn't have ended the game. And the part of me that really loves chaos as it relates to crazy things that can happen on a football field or within a football team or anything related to the sport that we love, because it's always fun to see something happen that we didn't expect and see how they pick up the pieces. If that clock had gone to zero, there would have been 49ers fans that would have been under the impression that they'd won. There might have been players celebrating prematurely on the field thinking they'd won. And if the person with his or her finger on the confetti cannon, had pressed that button. (laughs) It just could have gotten weird. It could have gotten weird, and it came close to that happening. But again, because it's all so new, it really is impossible to know with certainty whether or not the 49ers did the right thing or whether or not the Chiefs would have done the right thing if they had won the coin toss in overtime. We know by now the 49ers had predetermined that they wanted the ball. The Chiefs had predetermined that they wanted to kick. And the analytics are really, really, really close on this. And again, there's only one data point, the game that happened last Sunday. So the analytics won't be really close the next time because the one data point says, if you take the ball, you lose. But because the analytics are close and because both sides 
had deferred extensively to what their analytics people decided. That reinforces a point I made last week. Very difficult to go against the analytics crowd in your building. And, you know, when we think of analytics, it's not that there's one big consensus as to what teams should do in any given spot, except for ESPN analytics, which always say, go for it, no matter what. Every time they put that bug up, ESPN analytics say, go. For every team, there's a unique group of individuals who have their own proprietary algorithms that they use for those situations. And in San Francisco, the decision was, the recommendation was, take the ball. In Kansas City, the recommendation was, kick the ball. And the reality here is, as I said last week, if you're going to go against your in-house analytics people, you are taking a very real risk that if it doesn't work out, those same people are going to be chattering, whispering, talking about you behind your back to ownership or other people of influence within the organization. If you go along with them, yeah, you might get some criticism from the outside, but those people don't have the power to get ownership, to think of you differently. Why do we have these analytics people if you're not going to take their advice? Why did you go against it? Explain this to me again. Are you sure you did the right thing? And again, even if somebody doesn't get fired over it, it's still one of those moments where the boss views you differently. The boss, the boss maybe loses a little respect for your decision-making process because you went against the people who are on the payroll to come up with these recommendations. So I understand why 49ers had their decision predetermined and the Chiefs had theirs predetermined. The analytics people, after they crunched the numbers under their own individual unique formulas, decided that's what they should do. And with no clear anecdotal evidence, nothing, just all theory and hypothetical to push back against the in-house determination, not a surprise that the 49ers did what they had planned to do, not a surprise that the Chiefs had their plan made. And there's one last little thing that I want to throw out there. Somebody emailed over the weekend, and I like this idea. And maybe we'll see it at some point, but the question could be not all that relevant because we may not see many of these overtime periods in postseason games. But one possibility that I didn't see discussed much last week, choose to kick and do an onside kick. Choose to kick and kick it onside. Do the surprise onside kick like we saw from Sean Payton and the Saints in Super Bowl 44. If you don't get it, I mean, and the 49ers could have defended that. Hey, our defense was gassed, so let's just go ahead and give them a short field. We assume they're going to score anyway. We want to know what they scored. We want to know what they did, and we want to play four-down football after they played three-down football. And you factor in the chance of recovering a surprise onside kick, and I don't want to hear anything about the percentages of recovering onside kicks under today's rules because – 99.999% of the onside kicks that happen are expected. What is the success rate of a surprise onside kick under the current rules? And the reality is surprise onside kicks happen so infrequently, you're not going to have reliable predictors of whether or not it would have worked. Surprise onside kick. If you get it, all you need is a field goal at that point because the other team has had the opportunity to possess it's sudden death if you recover it. If the other side gets it, all right, they go score. Go score. And then we'll have a chance to match it or beat it. So 
it's just another way to think about it. Everyone's tried to be very creative. The one thing I hadn't seen this week, and I didn't think of it myself, it was because I read my emails and I encourage folks to email me, Florio at profootballtalk.com, any ideas they have about anything, because some of them are good. Most of them, mo most of them, yeah, well, let's just say, uh, sometimes you got to kiss a lot of frogs before one of these emails turns into a prince. But this was a good one because surprise onside kick is something we need to be thinking of the next time this happens. And aren't we all going to be rooting for more postseason overtime just so we can see this play out? Each game can be a case study postseason overtime with this guarantee that both teams will get the ball in that extra session. All right, tomorrow the window opens for the franchise tag. I wrote something about this earlier today on PFT. It's a two week period. It goes up until six days before the launch of the legal tampering period. And I've had people tell me, and I, I'm sure I'll get text messages, even though I've already written about it, there'll be people who say, why do they have a two-week window? People in the league, why do we have a two-week window? We just need one day. It's a deadline-driven business. The deadline is all that matters. But there is one very important reason for applying the tag early. It operates as a keep-away message to any team that might be inclined to try to tamper with that player at the scouting combine because we know no matter what the league says no matter what the league tries to do indianapolis is tampering central there's no digital footprints there are face-to-face -face meetings that happen every day every night every hour of the day between agents and teams and there's no way to prove the tampering happened so tampering happens if you make tampering irrelevant by franchise tagging the player then tampering doesn't happen. Chris Jones, if he's franchise tagged this week by the Chiefs, teams will know not to waste their time trying to put offers on the table unofficially for Chris Jones when he becomes a free agent because he's not becoming a free agent. Now, maybe there could be some discussions about coming up with a tag and trade idea, a proposal that would be made to the Chiefs to try to get Chris Jones. But you know what? That helps the Chiefs if that's one of their possible outcomes, tag and trade. We don't want to let this guy walk away. For a compensatory draft pick next year we want to get something for him now we'll tag him and if somebody is willing to pay him what he wants and give us what we want we'll do what we did with Tyree Kill as I pointed out though even though it worked with Tyree Kill he wanted a lot of money they traded him instead they've won two straight Super Bowls without him taking Tyree Kill out of the Kansas City offense is a very different proposition from taking Chris Jones out of the Kansas City defense because having a really good and very disruptive interior defensive lineman isn't something that you can easily replace or simulate by reallocating your defensive assets. It's a key piece. Michael Parsons talked about it recently with Stephen A. Smith. He wants somebody on that Dallas defense that does the kinds of things Chris Jones does. It's a rare talent. It's Aaron Donald. It's a guy that... Number one, as Chris Sims likes to say, Fs up the play by blasting through the line and just keeping the offense from doing exactly what the offense wants to do. And then the guy gets to the ball. He makes tackles. He is disruptive. He blows up a key third down in overtime when the 49ers are potentially going to score a touchdown and make it harder for the Chiefs to win the game. So, look, he's the big name to watch. The franchise tag for him is going to be just north of $32 million. 
negotiations on a long-term deal are complicated by the fact that he's already been tagged before. So next year would be his third tag. How do you negotiate a long-term deal when you know 32.16 million fully guaranteed? That's the starting point because that's what he gets if he just takes the tag. And if he just takes the tag, he's got a free pass to unrestricted free agency next year because the franchise tag for the third time for Chris Jones would be ridiculously high, at least 46 million, maybe higher. So how do you turn that into a long-term deal? How do you work that out? That's why tag and trade is a possibility here. And that's why maybe a little tampering is helpful because if I'm the chiefs, I say, look, I'm not negotiating a long-term deal with Chris Jones based upon the tag this year and whatever the tag would be next year, 46 million. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're going to do it based on the market. So if you've already done your homework, if you know what the market would be, if he's not tagged, if he's available for anyone to be signed, then that's where we should be talking. Part of the problem is getting to the truth in that regard. I mean, the agents have incentive to negotiate in a way that maximizes their client's recovery. The other teams that are interested aren't exactly going to put the cards on the table for the Chiefs because, again, it's all tampering to do it. But that's really the measure. That's the metric. And that's that's what I think the foundation for a long-term deal would be. And also, hey, to the extent that alcohol is truth serum, it sounds like Chris Jones wants to stay with the Chiefs. And even though his agents tried to downplay the comments that Chris Jones made last Wednesday about being here this year, next year, and the year after, not wanting to leave, he said what he said. Regardless of what his BAC was at the time, he said what he said. And that plays in the Chiefs' benefit as they try to work out this deal and keep him around. Other names to watch as the franchise tag window opens. Baker Mayfield, the Buccaneers quarterback. And from his perspective, look, a one-year deal, 35, $37 million. We don't know what the number is going to be yet because we don't know the cap number yet. I'm going to be writing this afternoon on PFT that based upon some folks I've talked to, $242, $243 million per team is what it's believed to be. Once we know that, then we work backward to figure out the franchise tag numbers for most players. For a guy like Chris Jones, you don't need to do that because it's a 20% bump over his cap number of last year, which is more than what the franchise tag would ever be at his position. For Baker Mayfield, it'll be in that range of 35 to 37 million. Hell, if I'm him, I welcome that. That's the indication that his career has, has completely resurrected. Now, look, he could get more on a long-term deal, more guaranteed, more security, and they can negotiate a long-term deal after that franchise tag. But getting franchise tagged is a win for a guy that took a $4 million base salary last year when not a lot of teams wanted him. So, you know, usually it's not good to be franchise tagged. There's a very thick silver lining if Baker Mayfield is franchise tagged because it represents that he has finally become the guy we kind of thought he was going to be in 2018. Man, 2019, not really. And then 2020, oh boy, he's on track to be a franchise quarterback. And then 2021, he had the shoulder injuries. Season got derailed. 2022 was a crap show. And 2023... He became the guy that we always thought he was going to be. And then the challenge becomes turning that into the long-term security that he surely believes he deserves. Other names to watch, Saquon Barkley, Josh Jacobs, a couple of running backs who were tagged last year. Will they be tagged again? It's a 20% bump over their cap number from last year. At some point, you got to ask yourself, do we keep doing this? Will the Raiders do it again with Josh Jacobs? Will the Giants do it again with Saquon Barkley? There's a good chance one or both of those guys will become unrestricted free agents. And then we'll see what the market bears for guys in their late 20s 
who've got some wear and tear, not as much tread on the tires at a time when you can draft a guy in round two, three, four, five, six, seven, undrafted, who can come in and be a great player right away. T. Higgins of the Bengals, expected to be franchise tagged without a long-term deal. That complicates the effort to pay Jamar Chase. Jamar Chase is going to want his contract sooner than later. He's eligible now. We'll see how that all plays out. And, you know, the other guy to watch, Josh Allen of the Jaguars. He's been frustrated that there haven't been talks on a long-term deal. It looks like the Jaguars are just going to tag him and see what happens. But this goes back to a point that I'll make from time to time in the aftermath of the rookie wage scale from 2011. And that's something the league wanted. The argument was busts like Philip Rivers, not Philip Rivers. Who am I thinking of? Ryan Leaf. Philip Rivers was not a bust. Ryan Leaf is who I was thinking of. Same team that drafted him. Jamarcus Russell. Other players taken high who were getting a ton of money. And the money kept going up and up and up every year at a rate that exceeded the increase of the salary cap. Those players abscond with money they never earn. Okay, fine. Makes sense. Let's not let that happen. The problem is you got guys drafted high that earn it and they don't get it. So they get a lot less for fear of busts walking away with money they never earn. You get guys who do earn the money. And then what do you got to do to get paid? Look at Josh Allen. Top 10 pick. Finished his rookie contract. Played his fifth-year option, still waiting for the reward that he would have gotten as the seventh overall pick if it had been pre-2011. Still made to wait by the Jaguars. And I remember interviewing the commissioner about this in 2010 when they were pushing for the rookie wage scale. Well, you know, the other side of the coin is you've got guys who will have earned their payday. How do they get it? And... He said something along the lines of, well, you know, the teams will take care of their players. And well, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Some guys get contracts after three years. Some guys get contracts after four when they're first round picks. Some guys got to play out the whole thing, all five. And then they get franchise tag and they don't get that shot at the big contract that they have clearly earned. And that leads us to Justin Jefferson. He has finished his rookie contract. He is embarking on his fifth-year option, and he is waiting patiently for a long-term deal from the Vikings. Last year, there were negotiations that went right up to the wire at the start of the season. As we reported at PFT, basically the ball was in the Vikings' court. And I talked about this with Paul Allen of KFAN, Voice of the Vikings, last week. I think I wrote something about it. Something I said or wrote last week got picked up by the, the Twitter bots. Sorry, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, even if I do. And it gets characterized a certain way, and people react and respond. And here's the bottom line. And I've been saying this for months. The Vikings have an approach to their long-term contracts that they aren't deviating from with Justin Jefferson. They deviated from it with Kirk Cousins. Full guarantee at signing. The Vikings don't like to, but for Kirk Cousins, apply a full guarantee beyond the first year of the contract. They want the full guarantee for year two to become activated in year two. It gives the team, in theory, an out, like the out that the Raiders used with Derek Carr. He had a full guarantee for year one. His full guarantee for year two was not fully guaranteed at signing. There was a window for the Raiders to get out of it, and they did. The Vikings don't want to do full guarantee beyond year one. The only exception they've made is for Kirk Cousins. 
So are they going to do it? I mean, it's not about how many dollars they've offered. It's about how much security they're willing to offer. And I was poking around about this a couple of weeks ago, and somebody said to me, do you know what he said no to before the season starts? It's like, well, I don't, but I do know this. There's a structural component, full guarantee beyond year one. And it's funny to see people reacting to, and I, I get it, I get it. Vikings fans don't want to lose Justin Jefferson, and they don't want to hear from anyone who is suggesting that they might, even if that person is right. It reminds me of when I was trying to tell folks in St. Louis, the Rams are going to leave, the Rams are going to leave, the Rams are going to leave. And the response was, you're making it up. You don't know anything. You have no sources. The Rams aren't leaving. And part of that is just human nature reaction to news we don't want to hear. It's the equivalent of plugging your ears and saying you're not listening. And I'm seeing that now, and I'm sensing that now. And of course, if Justin Jefferson ends up being traded, either because the Vikings choose to or because he runs out of patience and he says, I want out, like Stephon Diggs did four years ago, those people aren't going to say, hey, you know what? That dumbass was right the whole time. They're just going to, they're just going to say, oh, you got lucky. Blind squirrel found an acorn. And again, this isn't some hot take. This is a specific reality of the way the Vikings negotiate. They are one of the few teams that do this, and it hasn't really had a spotlight on it. They made the exception for Kirk Cousins. They gave him typically three years fully guaranteed whenever they did the initial contract in 2018 and the eventual extensions. There was never a long extension. It was always three years guaranteed, three years guaranteed, three years guaranteed. For Justin Jefferson, as of last year, the approach was full guarantee for one year. And then after that, it's an injury guarantee that becomes fully guaranteed the next year, but the team has a window. If they decide, for whatever reason, to end it, they can. And you never know what's going to happen. Do you think Derek Carr expected to get cut after one year? After he signed his long-term deal with the Raiders? No. That's what security is. It gives you one less thing to worry about. Is it reasonable for Justin Jefferson to think he's going to play so poorly in the first year that the Vikings say, you know what, we made a mistake, we're going to rip this up and move on? It's not reasonable to be concerned about that, but it's smart to have protection against it. That's what security is. And that's one of the things that I think has been a major impediment to getting a deal done. And now, because the Vikings have waited a year, it's only going to get more expensive. And, you know, the philosophical question the Vikings have to ask themselves is whether or not we even want to pay Justin Jefferson market value. That's another issue to keep an eye on as it relates to the receiver market, because the receiver market is becoming a lot like the running back market. You can draft guys who can play at a high level. And you could make the argument that only a select few receivers deserve 30 million a year or more that's the high watermark right now even though the Tyree kill 30 million per year is fugazi because there's a big number on the back end that drives that average up it's more like 27 28 regardless there may just be a few guys that deserve top of the market and what you have to ask yourself is if i have a guy that wants top of the market like justin jefferson am i better off reallocating am i better off going younger am i better off trusting we can find another jordan addison out there who could become the new Justin Jefferson in the Minnesota offense if they would move on from him? And can I, can I send him to a team that would be willing both to pay him what he wants and give us significant draft pick compensation that maybe could then be turned around and used to get up to the top of the draft and get a franchise quarterback? I said last year, 
If the Vikings don't sign Justin Jefferson to a long-term contract before the start of the regular season, you have to take seriously the possibility that they will trade him and use whatever they get as ammunition to trade up. They're starting at 11. How far do they have to go to get a franchise quarterback? Because I believe at the core, what they want is a long-term, year-to-year, 10- or 15-year franchise quarterback like Fran Tarkenton, and they haven't had one since Fran Tarkenton. They thought maybe they had one in Dante Culpepper. He suffered a serious knee injury October 2005 in Carolina, and that was that. They want, I believe, franchise quarterback. And trading Justin Jefferson could be the key toward getting the return necessary to move up, if that's what they want to do. It's a risky move because you're going to have a lot of upset fans if Justin Jefferson is no longer a Viking. There will also be some upset fans if Kirk Cousins is not a Viking. I've been talking about this and writing about this. We interviewed Cousins 10 days ago at the Super Bowl. And look, as I wrote over the weekend, the threshold question is whether or not the Vikings want to keep him. They haven't said one way or the other. And if they don't want to keep him, they should activate a PR strategy to get the word out there that they're thinking about moving on, unless they want the impression to be, we wanted him and he chose to leave. If that's what they want the message to be, so be it. They will be perceived as losers in the short term. But if that's what they wanted, if they don't want to throw gasoline on the fire and act like they don't want him and piss him off and give him extra motivation to beat the Vikings when he plays for someone else, fine. If they don't want to keep him, Okay, maybe they'll never admit they didn't want to keep him. They just won't really try to keep him. If they want to keep him, clock's ticking. Next week, scouting combine, tampering central. His agent, Mike McCartney, will be talking to teams, inevitably, that may have interest in Kirk Cousins. Starting with the Falcons. DraftKings has the odds. The Vikings over the weekend were minus 200 to keep Cousins. The next team on the list was the Falcons at plus 300 to get him. Followed by, as of this weekend, a reunion with Washington at plus 500, which on the surface seems ludicrous, but when you look at it, everybody's gone that was there. Wouldn't that be something if he went back to Washington under new management? That would be something. But regardless, that's the other issue looming over the Vikings. What's going to happen with Kirk Cousins? And do they really want him? Are they being deliberately discreet? Because it's bad form to let it be known they really don't want to keep and they'd like to move on. They're going to have a significant cap charge under his name, whether they keep him or not. They're going to have to sign him before he becomes a free agent to try to deal with that cap number that's out there. And remember, they can't tag him. The way his contract was structured, there's no way they can tag him. He is headed to the open market. He can reject any offer the Vikings make between now and the start of free agency, and he can see what else is out there. And I think at some level, the Vikings, if they want to keep him, are confident that whatever's behind door number two won't be more than the Vikings would pay. The risk they take, though, is that by not trying to get this done before he has to go see what's behind door number two, maybe he'll take what's behind door number two, even if it's less than what the Vikings would eventually do. There's something to be said in any employment setting for being wanted. And if you feel like the company you've been working for for six years is ambivalent about keeping you and is reluctant to value you the way that you believe you should be valued and somebody you've never worked for shows up and values you in a significant way, 
even if that wakes up your current employer and gets them to offer as much or more, there's a point where you may just say, you know what? Screw it. I'm not staying. You had your chance. You had your chance. You dragged your feet. You didn't think I could find something better than what you would offer. And I did. So I'm leaving. So we'll see how that plays out. It's one of the big issues, obviously, hovering over the offseason as we get closer and closer to the start of free agency. I mean, we are three weeks away from the start of the legal tampering period. Three weeks. So get ready. It is coming. All right, questions coming now on this Monday edition of PFTPM as I talk a little bit more to buy time in search of the tweet with the Ralph Wiggum gift. Making your cat happy is a number one priority. Priority number two is keeping a clean litter box. Fresh Step Outstretch Litter helps you do both. Fresh Step Outstretch Litter traps waste at the surface with less crumbles and absorbs more waste and odor compared to Fresh Step Multicat. Find Fresh Step Outstretch Litter at a store near you today. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates. Save big money on everything for your next project today at Menards. Transform your home in one weekend with exterior stain and sealer from Dutch Boy. It provides one coat protection on decks, fences, siding, and outdoor furniture and repels rain after just four hours of application. That means quicker results, saving you both time and money. Check out our weekly flyer, plus other great deals happening this week on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. All right. Let's see here. BFTPM Posse, why did new Seahawks head coach Mike McDonald get the NFL's equivalent of a hazard pay, even though it's been one of the more stable and successful franchises over the last 10 years? And most importantly, it doesn't include working with someone like David Tepper. Jody Allen seems 180 degrees different. Look, there's been a lot going on the past few weeks. I'm assuming that you're right, PFTPM Posse, our good friend Bobby in Texas, that there was hazard pay, a six-year deal. Part of the issue in Seattle is the team can be sold. As of May of this year, the team can be sold with none of the money going to the state of Washington. That was the threshold impediment. Any sale before May of 2024 meant 10% of the proceeds would go straight to the state of Washington as part of the, the stadium deal that was done 20 years ago. So there's a possibility that over the next few years, the team will be sold. One way to provide security for the coach who could find himself in the unenviable Ron Rivera position, which he was in twice, Carolina and Washington, is to give him the kind of contract that would provide him either ongoing employment or a big fat paycheck in lieu of ongoing employment in the event that Jody Allen decides to sell the team sooner than later. So that would be my answer to that. All right, let's see what else we got here. Sam Eichenlob, with the rules of new stadiums getting Super Bowls, any worry about Buffalo's new proposed stadium being outdoors? Would that cause the NFL to play a cold-weather Super Bowl in Buffalo or not go to Buffalo at all because of it being outdoors? Look, the, the, the rule that teams that get new stadiums that are financed in whole or in part with public money is not on the books anywhere. It's just part of the loose quid pro quo, and it's hardly universal. Other than MetLife Stadium, 
which got the only open-air cold-weather Super Bowl, and the NFL dodged a bullet on both ends, mainly on the second end, because it snowed like crazy the next day. That's the only open-air, cold-weather stadium that got a Super Bowl. Pittsburgh didn't. Cleveland didn't. Cincinnati didn't. Philadelphia didn't. So it, it, it only applies generally to open air, no, to, to dome stadiums in cold weather cities, Minnesota, Detroit, Indianapolis. And the other reality too is in Buffalo, even if it was a dome stadium, do you have the infrastructure there to host a Super Bowl? We talked about this last week on PFT Live. If and when Jacksonville gets the billion dollars in public money it's looking for for a renovated stadium, it might get a Super Bowl again. The last time Jacksonville had a Super Bowl, they had to bring in cruise ships in order to have enough hotel space. Hotel space and big-ass convention center are two of the necessary prerequisites to hosting a Super Bowl. And look at what happened in Las Vegas last week. There were some 500,000 people in town, even though a lot of them obviously didn't go to the Super Bowl and only held 61,000 for the game. But a lot of people want to come to town for that game and be around all the excitement around it. And I think that's an impediment, too, along with the fact that, you know, it's cold and it's potentially going to snow 30 inches in the week of the game or on the day of the game and nobody can get to the game. So I think that's pretty much a non-starter for Buffalo over hosting a Super Bowl. GB Soccer 6, were you surprised by how many NFL players played in the NBA celebrity game? I think it was three or four. Well, it was Micah Parsons, CJ Stroud, Puka Nakua. And look, remember when Patrick Mahomes was playing basketball a couple of years ago? And the Chiefs caught wind of it, and it was no more basketball for Patrick Mahomes. We've all played basketball recreationally and injured ourselves. Sprained ankle is the most common one. Randy Moss suffered a sprained ankle right before the draft in 1998, and that sprained ankle actually bothered him all of his rookie year, and he still was incredible. It doesn't take much. Look what happened to Dre Greenlaw. Now, he may have already had a pre-existing Achilles injury. To have it pop like that, you kind of wonder if it was feeling stiff, he was jumping up and down on the sideline, like maybe this thing's a little stiff and then pop it goes. But injuries happen all the time. Serious injuries happen all the time when you're playing basketball. I, I am surprised the teams let the players do it. And for the players who do it, they need to understand they're taking a real risk. You could lose guaranteed money. You could derail your career. You might never get the contract you were looking for. Is it worth it? Each guy's got to make that decision. I just hope that that they made an informed, educated decision about what the potential consequence would be to their NFL career. Because if it's going to potentially screw up your NFL money, is it really worth it? That's only a decision each player can make. But if it were me, and if I was giving advice to somebody that was family member, friend, client, whatever, I'd say, I don't think it's worth it. Michael Cameron Vay, where does Brandon Ayuk play next season? Where would he be a good fit? as a receiver one look he's going to want his contract he's entering fifth year option at 14.1 million the 49ers i think would like to kick the can for a year they want to get one more year of big cap numbers for guys like debo samuel george kittle maybe extend christian mccaffrey and load up his cap number this year because next year they got to deal with brock purdy wanting a new contract and deserving a new contract after getting peanuts as the last pick in the draft under that slotted rookie wage scale contract so I think the 49ers would love to finesse this. So Brandon Ayuk waits a year. He was second team all pro. He's eligible. He's due. He's earned it. He's going to jostle for it, I think. 
We'll see what the 49ers do. But if they want to play hardball, they hold his rights. And the 49ers like to play contractual hardball. They like to set the contracts up in a way that is very favorable to them. And, you know, if all else fails, you sit back, you fold your arms, and you say, hey, you're under contract. If you don't want to show up, that's your prerogative. But you're under contract. And you'll be fined. We, we'll fine you if you violate that contract and don't show up. Alex asks this question. Is the NFL ever going to take the officiating issue seriously enough to hire full-time accountable personnel with the influx of gambling income? How can they not? Hey, preaching to the choir. I've been saying this for months. Look at the money that is coming in through the gambling sponsorships and also look at the ability, and this is the soft underbelly of the NFL's gambling hypocrisy that no one, well, not many are talking about. Nobody's talking about it except for the people who are talking about it, but not many are talking about it. The fact that owners can hold equity interests in companies that operate sports books up to 5%. I made the example recently of DraftKings, $20 billion. If you own 5%, that's a billion. As of 2018, both Jerry Jones and Bob Kraft had a small amount less than 5%. The league allows you to own 5%. And as I understand it, you can own 5% of DraftKings and you can own 5% FanDuel and you can own 5% bet MGM, you know, 5% of the house collectively. So there's plenty of money out there to bankroll. The change is needed to enhance public perception that the NFL is doing everything it can to ensure that the calls are being accurately made. That's why I've been pressing the NFL on the quote that Roger Goodell gave back in 2012, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't have it in front of me, but in their opposition to gambling, he said, if legalized gambling is permitted on a widespread basis, normal incidents of the game, such as fumbles and bad calls and drop passes, will fuel speculation, distrust, or allegations of point shaving and game fixing. And I've pressed them to reconcile what Roger Goodell was sounding the alarm about and what they've seen. Have you seen this? I sure as hell have. I see it all the time. Games are fixed. Games are fixed. Games are fixed. That tinfoil hat theory has taken on credibility now that the NFL is fully in bed with gambling interests. And when you consider the fact that you've got owners who are allowed to own up to 5% of a sportsbook company and they won't tell us who, they refuse to disclose the list of who owns what, now, that may change. All it takes is one letter from Congress to say, we want to know this. The American people have the right to know. But there's a conflict there. There's hypocrisy there. There's inconsistency there. And it's not enough to just say when you're pressed as to what you're doing to prevent speculation, distrust, or allegations of game fixing by saying, well, we educate our personnel and we enforce our policies and integrity of game is paramount to us. Okay, fine. But what are you doing to get people who suspect that the game is fixed to think that it's not? And one of the things that they can do is spend the money for full-time officials. And, you know, the pushback is, well, it's never going to be 100%. I don't care if it's 100%. You need to create the impression you're, you're trying to make it 100%, right? Hey, I didn't study for the test and I got a 95. Well, okay, get back to me when you study. I studied for the test and I got a 95. Well, at least you tried to get the highest possible score you could. At least the NFL would be trying to get the highest possible accuracy rate that it can. 
It's not just winging it. It's spending the money necessary to make all of us think that they're doing everything they can to get these calls right. I think about what Jerry Jones said during the season, that the two teams in any given game have kind of loosely agreed that however they call it is how they call it. Even if the official is half blind, as Jerry Jones said, we both accept that that's how it goes. That's fine in a world where the NFL isn't fully in bed with gambling interests and the owners aren't owning 5% of the house. You don't want those bad calls to happen. You don't want to tolerate those bad calls. You want to make it look like you're trying to eliminate those bad calls because people are going to think that when the bad calls happen, something fishy has gone on. Speculation, distrust, and allegations of game fixing. That's what the NFL needs to fight against. And I don't think they're doing nearly enough to counter it. Word salads about integrity of the game and education of personnel is not going to change the growing perception that the fix is in, even though it's not. Now, I don't rule out the possibility of some rogue actors doing things they shouldn't do with inside information or a Tim Donahue, but the league at large is not trying to fix games. Good luck convincing the American public at large of that reality. Manuel Villa, is Las Vegas in the rotation now of usual Super Bowl spots every couple of years? It seems to make too much sense with a centralized location where everyone can be and not have to have too much travel during game week. I loved Super Bowl in Las Vegas. I don't know what the rotation is. We talk about a rotation. Has a rotation developed? Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Miami, New Orleans? They go, they go like 12 years between Super Bowls. Arizona, Atlanta's trying to get a game again. Tampa Bay, there's a sense that the NFL owes Tampa another one because the last one ended up being the COVID one that wasn't a full Super Bowl experience. Santa Clara's getting another one in 2026. I don't know what the rotation is. Should it just be three or four? And then you have to keep the door open for new stadiums domed in cold weather cities. At some point, they're going to replace Lucas Oil Stadium. And I guarantee you, Indy will get another Super Bowl when that happens. At some point, they'll replace Ford Field. Detroit will get another Super Bowl after that happens. Now, the Vikings Stadium, I remember when it opened, we went and toured it. They've got it set up, so it's going to be good for years and years and years. And it looks great. It doesn't seem like something's going to go out of date. But if they would ever have a new stadium in Minnesota, as long as it's dumbed, you're going to get a Super Bowl. So I don't know if the rotation's ever going to happen, but, but I think that two places should definitely get a Super Bowl at least every five years, Las Vegas and Miami. Whatever you want to do beyond that, I'm fine with it. Las Vegas and Miami every five years. I don't know when the next one's going to be in Miami. They haven't awarded it, and it's already been four years. So good luck coming up with a rotation. But if it were up to me, Miami and Las Vegas, within every half decade, would have at least one Super Bowl. Get everything for your next project today at Menards. Johnson Level has been an industry leader for over 75 years, offering the finest levels, lasers, and layout tools. The Johnson Level 85-foot laser distance measurer captures length, area, and volume. And it also can be used in dusty and rainy environments. View our selection of Johnson Level tools on Menards.com. Plus, check out the weekly flyer for many other great deals happening this week. Save big money. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. NFL leads listening to you all Super Bowl week, chatting to stars and legends, then watching the game live. Do you ever imagine what young Florio would have thought if he could have seen into his future. I, I I try to think about that from time to time, but I try not to think about it too much because I probably would freak out because, you know, when I discovered the NFL first on December 23, 1972 with the Immaculate Reception play, and then the next year when I kind of was all in NFL films, any show I could watch, game of the week, football follies, all the mythology that was created by the Sables about the NFL and watching the games that were available the NFL Today, the first live pregame show, and you need to check out You Are Looking Live. Excellent documentary about that show that really was a turning point in the way that football games were presented, in the way that football games were discussed. But yeah, look, I, it's one of those things that it was so incomprehensible back in the 70s to understand how the future was going to unfold and the opportunities that were going to come available because of technology, the idea that you can be anywhere in the world and cover anything you want to cover. You don't have to move to this city or that city. You can be wherever you are. You can have a voice from wherever you are. You can create a platform from wherever you are. Again, I try not to think about it too much because, I mean, it's been a crazy 23 years. And we started this thing from absolutely nothing. And my approach has been don't think about it too much because if you do, it's all going to implode. My my general approach has been I'm going to ride this horse until it throws me off or it dies under me. And now that I'm getting closer to 59, I have to take into account the possibility of me dying in the saddle, which of the three is probably the most likely outcome at this point, but we'll see how it goes. I don't know if I need glasses or if I just need a bigger phone. Let's get this in the right spot. RB Roughnecks, how do you think head coaching hires initial timeframes for job security have shifted? We just saw Frank Reich and Urban Meyer both get fired before the end of their first seasons. Two in Josh McDaniel's case. Do you think the NFL owners have rushed the rebuild timeline? Look, I don't, I, I don't know why some of these owners make their decisions. I go back to the basic reality. We've got multi-billion dollar businesses that are run like family-owned food trucks. So you've got people who make stupid decisions. Dysfunctional teams do dysfunctional things. And when you have, for example, David Tepper, when he's not throwing drinks on people, firing people, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it sounds mean, but he's the one that threw the drink on somebody. I mean, he had to at least consider somewhere in his brain, the moment he had the impulse to throw the drink, if I do this, number one, there's a good chance somebody's going to see it. Number two, there's a good chance somebody's going to record it. And number three, I'm never going to live it down. Anyway, um, 
you know, David Tepper is just a guy who wants to win so badly. I want it now. I want it now. I want it now. I always get my way. I always win. I want this. He, he, he wants it maybe a little bit too much. And he goes crazy when he doesn't get what he wants. I, I watched the first episode of The Dynasty on Apple TV. And there, there was a little clip about Tom Brady and his roommate, Brady's first year in the NFL playing Tecmo Bowl and just how ridiculously competitive Brady was. He'd stomp his feet to reset the game when he was losing. There were dents in the wall from when he had chucked the controller into it. He just wanted to win and he admits it. He wants to win at everything and he gets pissed off if he doesn't. And it, it reminds me of something I've said in the past when we talk about ridiculously competitive pro athletes that have to win at everything, not just the sport they play, but anything and everything else they do. I always have to win, 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 win. Anything I do, I want to win, I want to win, I want to win. When we see those traits in like an eight-year-old kid, we try to we try to say, hey, Timmy, you know, you don't have to win at everything. Give the other kids a chance. Like it's not an admirable quality in somebody who's growing up. But then when you've become a fully formed adult and you act like a spoiled brat, we're like, oh, 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 what a competitor. Oh, oh, bravo, good sir. It's just weird. It's weird that we, that we are in awe of somebody who acts like a spoiled little brat who never gets his way or always wants his way and will throw a drink on you if he doesn't get his way. All right. I don't know if I answered the question, but I had fun talking about it. Uh, let's see what else we have. NFL leads. I know the overtime decision by Kyle Shanahan has been discussed endlessly, but it feels like the obvious disadvantage of going first is being overlooked. A defensive touchdown ends the game and a turnover plus points does too. And Nick Bolton was inches away from that reality. And, and look, that, that's part of the analytics. And it happened to the Chiefs in overtime of the 2021 AFC championship game. Patrick Mahomes threw an interception. Happened to the Saints in overtime of the 2018 NFC Championship game. Drew Brees threw an interception. You can have a turnover. You can convert it to sudden death like that. So I talk about the possibility of surprise onside kick. You take possession before the offense even gets possession and you convert it to sudden death. So that's part of the benefit of, of being on defense first. But it's part of what the San Francisco Analytics Department came up with. In reaching their decision, they wanted the ball. And it's part of what the Chiefs came up with in reaching their decision, they wanted the kick. Let's see what else we have here. Manuel Villa, as a neutral outsider, have the Texans finally gone from dysfunctional franchise to a competent franchise, or does that take two to three years to fully come back from? Now, I think they're back. I think that between D'Amico Ryans and C.J. Stroud, they're back. And... They've got their quarterback. They've got their coach. The only concern is Bobby Slowick potentially becomes a hot commodity. The coaching carousel for next year, and they're going to have to have an offensive coordinator ready. They got lucky they didn't get a job this year. They have a year to plan for it. They better be ready to have a good offensive coordinator who can work with C.J. Stroud. This is one of the detriments to hiring a defensive head coach. You get a good offensive coordinator. He's joined at the hip with your quarterback, and the offense does well, and then – Brian Dayball goes to New York and Ken Dorsey becomes the offensive coordinator and things go the other way. And I'm, I'm sorry, Ken Dorsey, but we all know it happened. We all know it happened. We saw it. All right. 
Let's see what else we have. I should probably wrap this up. Tom Marshall, did Bill Belichick's checkered past with the Patriots play a part in him failing to get a job in this year's head coaching cycle? Look, I think it comes down to what Robert Kraft explained to reporters on the day that the mutual parting was announced. And remember, it was Belichick and Kraft at first issuing statements and no questions. Kraft came back later and answered questions. And he was asked whether or not Kraft considered the apparent willingness of Bill Belichick to give up some of his power and control. Kraft said that wouldn't be practical. It would be confusing. And think about it. You've got a guy who ran the entire operation for years. Now, all of a sudden, he's taking a backseat to somebody else on the draft and on the, the final 53-man roster and things that a general manager typically does and the coach doesn't, although plenty of coaches have that power. So it extends beyond New England because extrapolate the reality of Belichick being the guy who was in charge of a football operation for years going somewhere else. Even if he signs the paperwork that says I'm only the coach, it's still awkward for a general manager 30 years younger than Bill Belichick to exert authority over the team when you're tiptoeing on eggshells around the guy who had been in charge of a team for years. And hey, he agrees to it on the way in and then he shows up to do the job. And all it takes is a little grunt. All it takes is, is a quizzical look on the face. All it takes is a comment here or there. And it just it makes it hard for everyone to know exactly what the lines are when you have a guy who is ostensibly only the coach, but we all know he has run an operation for a very long time. And it's going to be hard for him to break that habit. And it's going to be awkward for the people who have the powers in another organization that he used to yield with the Patriots or wield with the Patriots. It's going to be hard for that to be a seamless, smooth transition. I think that's why he didn't have a job. And I think that's why he might not have a job next year. When he's a year older, and I wrote the thing over the weekend about the very real question of whether or not there's an age issue when it comes to NFL coaches. Pete Carroll didn't get a single interview in this cycle, and he doesn't come with that same baggage of Bill Belichick running the show, even though Carroll sort of did. It's not that same specter. And I think Carroll would be more likely and willing to take a step back and just coach the team. Cause I think he would have done it to stay in Seattle without question. And it probably would have worked. They were just ready to move on. But my point is the same concerns are going to be there next year. So unless you have an owner who is willing to hand the keys to Bill Belichick and say, turn my team around, unless you have that, it's going to be hard for him to find a landing place in 2025. All right. I said I was only going to do a half hour. At least I told myself that. I don't think I said that here. Getting up on an hour, as I usually tend to do. Um, ba -ba -ba. Bill in Michigan, what are the cap casualties you're looking at this week? Well, I think it's premature to be thinking about cap casualties. And it's not just cap. It's not just the cap charge. It's the value. Do we want this guy at this number? We could deal with the cap charge. We just think dollar for dollar we could do better elsewhere. Look at the Broncos. Russell Wilson house for sale, likely going to be cut. They may offer him some revised contract. He'll save pounds salt. He's due to make $39 million fully guaranteed this year. They need to cut him by the 17th of March to avoid earning him $37 million fully guaranteed in 2025. He's going to be cut. And it's not really a cap casualty because it's going to be a significant cap charge to move on from it. It's about more dollars in, throwing 
good money after bad. There are going to be other players that fall into that category. What are the Seahawks going to do with Jamal Adams? So it's not just cap. It's, it's just, it's the original analytics in football. How much does this guy cost me to keep as he's getting older? How much would it cost me to get somebody younger? Dollar for dollar, is it worth it? That's why I think Russell Wilson could be a hot commodity. If he's truly willing to take the veteran minimum and put the Broncos on the hook for the balance of the $39 million, one-year veteran minimum deal, you get Russell Wilson at $1.2 million? You know, the Steelers reportedly aren't going to consider any veterans that want to be starters. Okay, Russell Wilson, Kenny Pickett, Mason Rudolph. And I know Russell Wilson's kind of done this the past couple of years. Russell Wilson. Kenny Pickett, Mason Rudolph. And you get Russell Wilson at $1.2 million? Are you kidding me? The Raiders, they could get Russell Wilson at $1.2 million? Are you kidding me? For a year? See what he does if it works out? Find a way to keep him around. I mean, he's going to be 36 in November. It's not like he's got 10 years left. I know he said he wants to play until he's 45, but let's just focus on getting to 40 first with a starting job. This is his chance to turn his career around. If he does it for $1.2 million, it's a hell of a bargain for whoever gets it. All right, what else do I have? I'm not sure I answered that question either, but I enjoyed the process. <laughs> this is a hell of a question. I'm going to end on this. And if I didn't get to your question today, give it a try tomorrow. Um, you have five minutes to hide a paperclip in your home. A detective has 24 hours to find it. If, you, if they don't find it, you get $100,000. Where are you hiding the paperclip, that, that's a hell of a question. And I don't know that I'm going to answer it. First of all, I want to think about it. And second of all, I ain't going to tell anybody out there where I'd keep my paperclip. That's for me to know and a detective to take 24 hours to find out. But on that note, think about that. Well, maybe we'll reconvene tomorrow or Wednesday and revisit the possibilities of where in your home you would within five minutes hide a paperclip knowing that someone would have 24 hours to find it. You got about 24 hours to think about that, assuming I do an edition of PFTPM tomorrow. I have a feeling that I will. For now, I'll say thank you for some of your time. Have a great day. And check us out around the clock, as always, at ProFootballTalk.com. National Outlet Shopping Day is back. Join us June 8th and 9th at Simon Premium Outlets nationwide. Score thousands of can't-miss deals from brands you love all weekend long. They've got up to 65% off every day. And the National Outlet Shopping Day deals are even better. Visit premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD to find a premium outlet near you. That's premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD.
Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.